Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction. Welcome to today's monthly expert series presentation. We're glad to have you join us today to discuss patients as partners and the drug development process. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www.mitoaction.org resources slash patient partners. If you are joining us via your computer, you should see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen on the menu bar. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. Today's presentation is pre-recorded, but our speaker is on live with us and will be answering questions at the end of the presentation. As we shared recently on our annual Mitotown meeting, there are a lot of really exciting studies for mitochondrial disease on the horizon. A key component to the success of any trial includes patient input and participation, not just as a trial participant, but having an active voice at the table to help pharmaceutical companies shape trials based upon what is most important to those affected day in and day out. We're honored to have with us today, Dr. Madhu Davies, Medical Director from Renew Pharmaceuticals to share with us the importance of patients as partners in the drug development process and the most meaningful ways for the community to take an active role. Dr. Davies has served many roles at companies developing medicines to patients with rare disease. For more than 25 years, she has provided leadership and advisory services, working in clinical development, safety, regulatory programs, gaining broad experience of drug development, including biologics, small molecules, and vaccines. Dr. Davies has held significant pharmaceutical roles as medical director and CMO in addition to medical affairs. She trained in medicine in the United Kingdom and maintains an active academic interest as visiting professor at Cardiff University. She is director of the postgraduate course in pharmaceutical medicine and has also edited or contributed to several textbooks and journals. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Davies. Thank you to Kyra and to the organisation for inviting me to speak today.
1948 with the first tuberculosis studies in which streptomycin at that time, an incredibly brave and novel approach, was trialled for the treatment of this dreadful disease, which was killing people at a rapid rate. And since that time, we have come a very long way. I think it's fair to say that, that medicine has been very patriarchal, very bothy, very much telling people how it's going to be. And so in my view, that's, that's around patients being done to rather than being genuine partners in research, as, as I think we would all feel we should be. So these days, it's really very warm and encouraging for me because drug developers, patients, regulators, pay, payers, and lots of other stakeholders that you'll all be able to think of, insurance brokers and so forth, are talking. They are starting that dialogue that's so important to understand the common goal. But it is very early days and we have got some way to go on getting there and truly integrated drug development with everybody contributing equally. This will come though, and there's a real appetite for it. And I'm hoping that that's something that will come across from some of the slides I'm going to share with you. It makes sense though, doesn't it? We're all here for the same reason. We all want to get better quality drugs to patients faster so that patients can benefit from the health interventions and lead a happier, healthier life. So I think that's a really positive step here because we all want the same thing. And so with that in mind, hopefully we're all aligned towards getting to that point. I think it's fair to say that, that um, pharmaceutical companies, pharma in general, we're really good at the science. And so we should be. We're very good at, um, at PhD students coming up with some brilliant insight, developing a molecule which, which might be a drug one day. And that's fantastic. And certainly that needs to continue. But it's the patients and their caregivers who understand the everyday impact of the disease. I can read, and indeed since I've joined Renea, I've been reading and reading and reading about mitochondrial diseases. And every day I learn something new, which is fantastic. But I'm reading about other people. And it's you as patients and caregivers who, can, who provide that incredibly valuable understanding. You have the lived experience um, and when we're designing studies, we need to take that experience on board. And I make no apology for the fact that some of the things I'm going to say pop up in, over and over again on slides because they are so important. Those insights are so valuable because they, have, they provide information to fill the knowledge gaps that we have and to inform the research and make sure it's appropriate and relevant. We can invent, invent the best possible treatment to treat a diagnosis, but if it's not treating the condition that, that people are living with on a daily basis, that misses the point, doesn't it? I think furthermore, this the whole process of working together has really been helped by the access that we all have, and all of us the patients on Sundays, to really good quality information now on both disease areas and possible drugs and, and, and new and upcoming treatments that might be available in the future. And, and this patient group here is a really good example of that with fantastic quality information posted on the website and of course other sources on the internet. For me, it's really important. The, the big thing I've seen over the last two decades or so is that patients understand and take the time to understand far more than they ever used to, which links into information being available. 
And because of the understanding of what's possible, quite rightly, patients expect more of their clinical study experience. And so I think that's very important that we're held to account in terms of why are we having all these visits? What, what's the point of all of this? And we need to explain that really clearly. And being held to account, as I say, by patients is a, a really good reminder of why and how we need to explain. Something that's been really important, quietly running along in the background now as well, is that regulators are asking about patient experience. They're asking directly in terms of, have you actually asked the patients what they think about this? Is this the thing that matters? And also in terms of patient reported outcomes, which are formal measures of how a patient feels during the course of the study or how the disease is impacting them during the study. And I think that's a really valuable um, tool as well. And that's a really useful way to find out whether the amazing scientific breakthrough is actually having the desired effect for patients. So generally, I, I would say over the last 20 odd years that I've been working in industry, this has been this fantastic movement away from we're just doing science and that's all that matters through to the science is clearly the underpins this and is fundamental but it needs to meet the patient needs of real patients and the caregivers. Overall, I'm hoping that we end up with a win-win situation, which is how I think it will be, because better patient experience will lead to, to it, more patients coming forward to studies, which means that we might be able to test medicines that could have a potential benefit. I think we'll also have better quality studies with patients fully on board as to why we're doing things and that we'll be able to recruit more quickly because patients are part of that process and understand what we're doing. So I'm saying the same things as you'll hear in different ways. So hopefully we'll get better drugs to put for patients to the market faster with patients on board rather than just as passive bystanders in the research process. And that's why I think patient perspective really, really matters. So again, a win-win because what's in it for patients and for pharma is very closely aligned here. I think we all want the same thing. I have to be honest though, there are, there are some gaps between what we'd all like to do and the reality. And hopefully those gaps will close. And people are working very hard in different places to explore various models of, of getting together to see what sorts of engagement might work for the patients what works for sponsors, investigators, site staff, and importantly, although I didn't write it here, regulators, to be honest, because of course, underpinning all of this, quite rightly, there is a regulatory framework to protect patients and make sure that we're all doing the right things. I think those models and, and explorations are really useful because they're beginning to identify where value can be added. Clearly, we all like to talk and we must talk to maintain a dialogue, but there are places where the conversations can be most fruitful and that's incredibly useful too. And so, as I've, as I've just alluded to really as well, we also need to stay within the guardrails, making sure that we proceed ethically, appropriately, and always, of course, with the best interests of patients at heart. So that's, that's all fine and dandy for me to talk about those things, but what do we need to do? I work for pharma, I work in pharma. What is it we need to do on our side to facilitate this partnership that I, that I appreciate is so important? First and foremost, the thing that has really changed is understanding the value of the partnership. It was never discussed 20 odd years ago when I joined industry. 
we just ran studies, clinical trials. And since that time, I am so thrilled to see the frameworks that are being built gently, carefully, tentatively, because this is a new world. We're all moving forward together and it's, you know, trying to find as I've saying, best ways to do this. Identifying the right people from within our companies to lead this experience and to support the engagement activities. And some of you have, have I know, have met my colleagues at Reneo, who, who, or in particular one of them, who's really good at this. And she has put, brought enormous experience to this. And I think, certainly from, from my perspective, is really helping me to understand the benefits of the activities and how they can be done so much better. And that's great. So, so that's a live example of how a pharma company has identified somebody who can do this really well, I hope. We also need to think very hard about ethics and inst or institutional review board, as I, I believe it's called in the US, approval, because all of our activities pretty well are covered by, by the need for ethics review. And we need to make sure, as I said earlier, that we always, always behave in the most appropriate way and to the highest standards. And that's very important to me. There's an issue about timing, isn't there? Because we, we, if we want to run a study, there is a window. And if that window closes, we've missed our opportunity. So we need to talk. We need to thoroughly investigate what it is that we need to be doing as a team in terms of find, identifying the right objectives, the right things to be studying. But we can't take all day about it because our window of opportunity will shut and we need to run a study at the end of the day. Whilst I have to say, I put it on the slide, but the budget does come into this. So there are things we might like to do that we simply can't afford to. Um, and I think we just need to be honest about that if, that's, if that arises. And I think another issue for me is I, I, I can read there are papers beginning to be published on this area now, and they're all really important and really informative. But I can't just take what somebody else did and mirror that for my studies with Reneo because one size will not fit all. We need to adapt everything for the, the patient groups, the disease, the population, the country that, that we're in, all sorts of things to make sure that it's the right approach and that it's going to work for everybody. So in order to partner well with patients in, in the, the design and the execution of studies, it's not just going to happen on its own. We all need on our side, on the pharma side, to invest the thought, the effort, the time, um, and the people and the resources to make these effective collaborations happen. And as I say, I, I really do think this is happening now. We've, we, we're on that, we're on that journey, and this is becoming a win-win scenario. So that makes me very happy. I am very enthusiastic about this, as I hope you can tell. But I do, I do have to be honest, there are some downsides. And I think the key one for me is, is being honest, keep, keeping it, keeping it um, real. There are some unreasonable expectations from both sides. I, I might hope to understand more than is reasonable from, from patient advocates. And equally, the, the patient advocacy side may, may not quite understand some of the limitations that we're working to, particularly, for example, within a regulatory framework. So I think we need to be straightforward about that. There can be a lack of alignment. So things like the, the length of time it takes to develop a new medicine can just be really frustrating because 
in conversations I've had in the past where I haven't been very clear enough about that. People haven't realised that we're talking about several years for getting a new drug rather than a few months. And that can be a really important factor in understanding how the relationship needs to work. We're in this for the long haul. There is, there is a fashion for this, for this at the moment that we should all be talking to patients. So this is from the pharma side. This can't be a fashion. This has to be something that we're doing from the heart. As I said earlier, we need to invest the time and the thought in doing it right. And it does take time and it does take consistency of approach, which links back to this just not being a fashion item. It's something that we need to do deliberately, thoughtfully and consistently with time. So those could be seen to be upsides or downsides, but I decided to capture them here just, just for, the, from a, for a reality check. I was thinking very hard when, when I was invited to do um, to talk to you all today and do this talk about some examples I've seen over the over the last few years and areas the other areas in which I've worked. And so I've got some slides here really just based on that experience. So I've worked in a in a rare, in the very rare epilepsy field, so that the horrible disorders that can affect some children, which really do impact their ability to grow and develop and have immense caregiver burden. And also, since I've joined Renault, we've been doing some work in the fatty acid oxidation disorder area. And what I've seen from both has been interesting because they were separate, they're very different disease areas, but they have a commonality in that there's relatively limited published information on the medical consequences for patients. So the medical bit is well de described, but what does it mean? Less so. That links into the fact that there really has been very little published to date in either area on disease burden, going back to the what does it mean to patients who have very severe disease or perhaps milder disease. And then accompanying that to allow us to design the right study, there's not been much in the way of natural history studies, by which I mean simply observing patients for long periods of time to see how their disease unfolds and what it is that's bothering them about it. And that's how really we get to the unmet need. So with, with the children I was working with some time ago, we, we spent a long time with the natural history first because we really wanted to understand whether our drug could actually be a useful intervention because again, we don't want to raise false hopes. And I'm happy to say that in that scenario, the drug was a useful intervention and it's now a marketed product. So that's, that's really encouraging. And we're at, we're at an early stage with that journey here with our fatty acid oxidation disorder um, research with, with patient groups. So hopefully we're going to be able to identify an unmet need that we can meet if the drugs work. But if we can't, we need to be honest about it. Um, another example here has come directly from the work we've been doing in primary mitochondrial myopathy. And some of you will be aware of it because you've been helping us with that. There are some very well-established tests or measures which the regulators expect us to use. And that's, that's fine and that's important because they're important because they're measures that are very widely understood by doctors across medicine. But what does that really mean from a patient point of view? And so we also have been asking patients about the, the things that we should be measuring, the endpoints that matter to you. Importantly, are these things that we can identify and measure early on and then test them to see how useful they really are in a, in a, in a study setting 
we're not saying that they don't matter to you in real life, but if, if they're too soft, if you like, or too difficult to measure or too inconsistent in their measuring, then they're not going to help us persuade regulators to allow us to license drugs. So that, that's what I mean by that. And they, unfortunately, at this stage, need to be things we can measure and that we can measure again before and after treatment so that we can show a regulator like the FDA that we've made a difference. It may not always be the difference we were hoping for, but that's why it needs to be something that we can measure and repeat. How I say I feel isn't the same as how I record it. If I've got a little scale to, to um, use or a chart or pictures or with children, we have smiley faces or sad faces. And it needs to be something that we can do over and over again to show the regulators that we are having a consistent drug effect. Another area where we've, we've really, really valued in, from an interaction and, and a partnership with patient groups is education. I think you'll have got the message from this with the, the thread of the, the slides I've already shown. We're good at the science, but we really don't have a huge insight into what you're going through every day. And I've put neurology, which is a massive area, but this is this I've done this now in two areas. I've been so privileged to, to be able to talk to patients who have a really horrible, horrible, rare neurological condition, which means that they start off absolutely fine in life. And then as they get older, they degenerate and their, their symptoms become very profound. And that that's that's that was a very moving piece of work to, to um, participate in, to have the, the sheer honesty of patients who are prepared to share how they felt today and how they, particularly when they were remembering how they felt a few years ago and what they could do a few years ago. And that was incredibly helpful in informing how we approached research. Another area that, that links very nicely to that theme is advisory boards and companies are beginning to set these up now to have a, a genuine research question. They're not there to be talking shops. They're there to bring together a group of expert patients to answer a specific question or perhaps two or three questions in depth, again, with the, the goal of helping us to develop and design a, proper, a protocol that properly addresses those things. That also helps us because we have conversations with regulators and we're on very firm ground then because we talk to you and we know what it is that you're looking for. Part of the board um, questioning question pack might be around information for study subjects as well. How, how do we best explain something that we're just developing ourselves and we're beginning, we're only beginning to understand ourselves? What is the common language that we can all use so that everybody understands the same thing in the same way? And I think that's really important too. Does it make sense to a patient? And is what we're asking of patients simply too much? And so those are, those are very, very important areas where there's already been some movement on this and where there was certainly going to be a lot more. Sometimes we can treat something, but the treatment may have horrendous side effects it may have limited impact for a short period of time, which is then not carried on for, for in, the, in the long term. And cancer studies are probably, the, the very rare cancers are probably the best examples of that, that you can arrest the disease perhaps for a few months, but overall, unfortunately, the cancer still progresses. 
sometimes you can stabilize disease. The patients don't get better, but they simply don't get worse. And very, on, on other occasions, which is something we're all aiming for, you can actually improve the patient's condition. But the trade-offs that I might think are reasonable as someone who doesn't have a disease or that a regulator might think are reasonable may not match what patients want. So for example, when I've worked in, in very rare pancreatic cancers, we developed a medicine which, which on average gave an extra eight to nine weeks of quality life. That was the big deal to the patients. The regulators weren't so impressed and pancreatic cancer, as some of you may unfortunately know, is a disease where patients don't know they've got it till quite late on. And once it's been diagnosed, a gap between diagnosis and, and, and unfortunately dying is usually relatively short. So for these patients, it was a question of, I can get my, I can go to my daughter's wedding, I'll be able to give her away, or I might see my grandchildren. It was a real quality of life issue. And they came with us to, to FDA and we had some conversations. I'm sorry to say that the drug did not get licensed in, in the US on the, on the basis that, that eight weeks wasn't much. But to those patients, that was a really good example of where the trade-offs they were prepared to make didn't match, match those of, of a pharma company because we couldn't do any better or for a regulator. But that's an example of the sort of thing I mean. However, sometimes... There are positives and um, there has been some really impressive partnerships with, with pharma and FDA aligned. And some of you will remember the HIV treatments that came out in the 1980s and the huge lobbying that was done by patient groups, very much on the theme of what I was talking about with the last slide, where the drugs had nasty side effects, but they also worked for a time in certain groups of patients. And as, as many of you will be aware, treatments have just come on so much now that they're really not comparable. They're so much more benign and so much more effective. But this was the very early days in that horrendous epidemic that was just taking away a generation of young men principally, but also others. And that was a very successful example of, of collaboration between pa patients, pharmaceutical companies and FDA and treatments were made available. Much more recently, in 2016, um, appropriate patient lobbying with it, with, um, supported by a data set generated from studies that pharmaceutical company had run, brought a Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a rare neurological disease drug, to, to young children who were able to benefit from that. And then on a slightly different tack, some of you will be very well aware of the 2014 workshop that was hosted at the National Institutes of Health and was all around nutrition, interventions, where did the research opportunities lie, but critically, and just as importantly, around forging collaborations between all of these groups who need to come together. So the researchers, the clinicians, patient advocacy groups, of course, and of course, the federal partners such as FDA. And that was, that was a really big success. I'm sorry to say I wasn't there, but I hear from colleagues that it was a very, very successful meeting. And that was a really good example of patients having a voice and, and making their voice heard. So I've been talking for quite some time now. What have I learned over the last 20 odd years? Um, contrary to the fact that I've done nothing but talk here, I suppose the most important thing that I've learned is I need to listen need to listen really 
really carefully to understand what, what it is that I'm being told, but also to understand whether our expectations are aligning and to be honest about it if they're not. I've learned that I've learned through listening that there are many ways to collaborate fruitfully back to my one size doesn't fit all theme. And in order to do that, we need to build the relationships first to find out what those fruitful ways could be. They might be focus groups, they might be interviews, it may be patient platforms, networks, advocacy, a number of the things we've discussed so forth. But whatever it is, I need to have heard that and I need to have understood what, what it is that people are taking the time and the trouble and the generosity to share with me. We do have tools, and that's something I've learned the hard way sometimes. We have the 21st Century Cures Act, which really puts patients front of mind now and focuses on, on areas of unmet need. The FDA is willing, we just need to give them the data that they need to safely allow a drug to be prescribed to patients. I am conscious though, very conscious, that in rare diseases, there is a tension. There's a tension between altruism and that desire to contribute and between the limited treatment options. So people are, people are thinking, do I volunteer for a study knowing that I may not benefit but future generations might? Do I wait for the next one that comes along? When might that be? And none of us know the answers to this, but I am very aware that, that this is something that patients think about very carefully. So the toolkit or the tool is that is the opportunity, but then we have to be careful how we use it. I'm just going to go on mute for a moment, I hope. <coughs> Excuse me. The other thing that I feel is really important here, and I've mentioned several times now, and I've been, I hope, blisteringly honest during this presentation, is that we need to build trust. If I can't do something, I need to say so, I need to own it. And if we disagree on that, we need to agree to disagree. And hopefully my part, my patient partners will, will feel the same. But it's, it's any grown-up, it's the same as any other grown-up conversation, isn't it? We will have areas where we agree, and we will have areas where we agree to disagree. But I want to be positive about this because my experiences have been positive. And so once we have agreed on a goal, we just need to get on with it, don't we? And each side needs to know what they're doing, what their responsibilities are, who it is we talk to. And then the goal here will be that we all over-deliver and do much better than we thought we were going to, and, and we under-promise. And for me, I think one of the big things is when I don't know the answer, I should say so and not waffle about it or make it up. It's probably self-evident by now from the things I've said in the slides that some of you may have been reading as we go along about why I believe in patient partnership. There are so many positives and we've discussed many of them already. But I think it is absolutely fundamental now to reducing patient burden to answering the right questions in our clinical trials and developing drugs the right way so that we get that right, the right medicines to the right patients at the right time without unnecessary delays and, and lots of sidetracking and lots of wandering down avenues that we've wasted time on. I want to get good medicines to good people like you as quickly as I can. That's why partnership is so important. 
So I genuinely do believe this. I believe we're all in it together. And I believe that we are all holding hands together to get to that good place where we get good medicines to patients faster and more effectively. And on that, I'd like to thank you once again for having invited me to speak today. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. David. We are now going to open up for the Q&A portion and we've had several questions come in. So uh, the first question is, if you're part of a medical trial study, what's the best way for you to provide feedback to your pharmaceutical partner or your um, primary investigator? Thank you. At every, at every visit, um, you will actually be asked how you're doing and how you're feeling in the study. So the opportunity is there on a regular basis to do that. If it's more general feedback around why, why am I having these blood tests done or are they necessary, then the, the investigator should be able to explain that at the time. And we should have got that right in the patient information as well. But we would take that on board for the next time. I think it's around taking the opportunities really when you when you attend the study visits to to provide that feedback and it's very welcome. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, the next question is, um, what type of time commitments and expectations would be involved in joining a patient advisory board? The honest answer is it depends but it's generally not going to be particularly burdensome because again, we don't, nobody wants to create a, a full-time job out of this. We, we just need to all share the appropriate information at the appropriate times. So it might be something like, please, re please review, um, please, please review what we're trying to do with this study. Does this make sense to you? Mm -hmm. um, we were thinking about doing something in this way. Does that work for you and for your families and caregivers? It might be around how we develop the patient information. As, as I mentioned in the talk, sometimes the science is so new and we know so little that we're all trying to, trying to work out what to explain, how to explain it and how to be accurate so that everybody understands the same thing. And I might say it in a way that appears perfectly clear to me, but it's gobbledygook. So, so those sorts of things are very important. There are often opportunities via patient advocacy groups like this to participate in, in focus groups or one-to-one -one interviews as we're trying to embark on new ways of doing things or to, or to work out how, to, how best to administer a drug or what sort of medicine it should be, should be a tablet, capsule, something like that. So there are all sorts of opportunities that currently are likely to happen at some point for some some product and development program and there are all sorts of things that i haven't even thought about yet which i'm sure will happen in the future wonderful thank you yeah i mean and, and again outside of just the participation in the trial as you said there's so many opportunities for patients to provide feedback you know helping to develop educational materials disease resources and all of those other kinds of um educational resources that the pharma partners develop as you guys are entering clinical trials for various diseases. Um, how important is it for industry to not only have the input of patients, but caregivers and family members as well, whose lives are also affected by a diagnosis 
um, of a loved one with a rare disease? That's a great question. And I think the, the answer to the question came in the last part. If it's the condition like high blood pressure where I don't even know I've got it, a doctor to my surprise tells me I need to take blood pressure tablets for the rest of my life and it's just me it's impacting, then probably there's very little that a caregiver could offer for that. Well, there may be, but I'm just speaking off the top of my head here. But where we're talking about the condition, typically the rare disease conditions which affect the whole family, the caregivers, school, um, friends, then it's really important because those are the bits that we historically treating this, managing this through science haven't really been very good at looking at. And they might be the areas that actually matter most to patients. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, next question is, if a patient learns about a trial outside of their doctor's office, what do you recommend is the best way for them to approach their clinician to learn more about the trial and for potential participation? These are all great questions, actually. So um, let me think the best way to answer that. So if it was me and I came across, I, I heard a, about a study through however I did, but it wasn't directly through my own doctor, I would try to write down as much as I could based on what I'd heard about why I thought I might be a good candidate for the study. I would definitely look on clinicaltrials.gov, which is the international registry. For, it's very easy, clinicaltrials.gov. That's all you have to put into your browser. And I'd see what I could find out about the study there. I may well um, just print print off that, that entry on clinicaltrials.gov and cross-check because it tells you on there what sort of patients are suitable for the study. And it might even tell you where the sites are, depending on how advanced the study is in its setup stage, because they may not know yet. Um, I probably would at my next visit, if I felt still felt I, I might be a good candidate for that study, having read all of that and thought it through, I'd take it with me probably to my doctor and I'd, I would very, um, in my case, re um, respectfully ask them if they would have a look at it and see what they think, but I would leave it with them. I wouldn't hassle them for an answer instantly because they need to think. It may be that they themselves do some more investigation. It may be that they that they they actually already know about it and they can give you a quick answer. But do give people a chance to think about it, and give you a, give you a, an informed response. But that's that's what I would do if it was me. Wonderful, thank you so much. So I have a question from um, the mom of a patient who lives local um, to Renio, and her oh, question, wow. her question involves. Are there opportunities for patients to come in and get an, get a chance to meet with the staff? I know that one of the things that that we do a lot at MitoAction because the the pharmaceutical employees, right, a lot of times have never met a patient that has the disease that you're studying, um, and so this this patient is asking, are is that something that Renio is committed to doing? Um, having those in person, obviously you can't just walk in, um, but giving the staff and the team that are working so tirelessly on these drug develop, development of these drugs, are there opportunities for them to actually meet real live patients? I, I'm going to say this very carefully because I don't want to say the wrong thing, but my understanding just before I joined the company was that we've already through, through the, of your kind support and, and through the support of other patient groups been incredibly privileged to meet some patients who have really helped our education and I'm absolutely sure that we can create those opportunities in the future. I say this slightly cagely because I need to make sure I'm not breaking any of the 
the rules around talking to patients appropriately and all the rest of it. But yes, we'd be, I'm sure we'd be delighted. But I think we would try to mediate that through through the good offices of say mito action because we want to do it right and not take advantage of any patients or ever be accused of doing so right absolutely and, and that goes back to the opportunities the organized opportunities like advisory boards and um focus groups and things like that where you know where everything is done um, appropriately and you're able to interact with patients appropriately um, so if, if those opportunities do present themselves, we will be sure to share that with the patient community. Um, another a big question. thank you, sorry, sorry, Cara, but a big thank you to the, um, the audience member who came and suggested that and, and volunteered. That's really kind. Absolutely. Um, another question came in that asked about um, what is Reneo doing to ensure that the studies have diversity and are open to those who may not already know about them. So what are the best ways to, you know, to share the information with, with the patient community and ensure that as many people as possible are informed about a clinical trial? These are all fantastic questions. So if you, if you are interested in participating in clinical trials, the single best source of um, impartial and completely fair information without any bias whatsoever is to look at clinicaltrials.gov and keep an eye on that. Once you've been to the website, you'll see it's really easy to search. So you can just periodically check for yourself to see whether any studies are happening. I think the other ways of doing this really are just uh, for us are being vigilant. Um, so we think very carefully about where we're allowed with, with IRB Institutional Review Board permission to share very top line information in a more public domain. But as you all know, that's incredibly tightly regulated. You know, it's, it's not come out and buy a new car with a clinical trial. So we have to be so careful how we do this. So we would tend to definitely clinicaltrials.gov. We would always put information on there and that's, that's absolutely your best source. But where we're allowed to and where we have the intention and evidence that we're setting up a study, we may be allowed by some IRBs to put very general posters up in, in clinics where, where, the, where the appropriate patient group might be visiting. We may be allowed to, for example, give some information to Mito Action, which may or may not go on the website, depending on how relevant it is. And we do have to we do have to think carefully about how to use those routes so that people do know about the studies and they and they are able to come forward and volunteer for them. But it's some it's an area we have to tread very carefully because as I say we're not selling cars. We're we're interested in giving good quality information to patients to help them start a journey if they wish to do so. Right. And we and just on the MitoAction website, if you search clinical trials, there is a page that highlights all of the clinical trials that are related to mitochondrial disease and fatty acid oxidation disorders. And it gives you know a brief overview of all the different trials and then also the links to clinicaltrials.gov. So I would encourage people, if you're interested in learning more about those trials that you can always visit our website um, and we can help you navigate that. If you have any questions, you can just reach out to one of the MitoAction team members, so. So thank you, Dr. Davies, so much for helping the community better understand the role in clinical trials development that patients play. Especially now with COVID-19, I know that the community has a lot of concerns about participating in trials right now, but what 
but we all know that it's so important that we don't lose momentum right now and that patients recognize the critical role that they play in drug development. So I appreciate you helping us to understand outside of just participating in the trial, the critical role um, that patients play in shaping trials. Um, it's really, really important. So as a reminder, today's presentation will be hosted on our website for anyone who would like to listen again, share with others, or go back at a later date and listen. You can also find the full catalog of the MitoAction Expert Series presentations on our website and on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. We thank each and every one of you for joining us today, and we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you so much, Dr. Davies. We appreciate your time. Thank you.